Hey everybody, hope you're well. Hope this catches you at a good time where you have a minute to uh, um, watch this and take to heart the things that we learned in scripture today at church. This is the digging deeper video for Luke 9 um, verses 37 to 47 and uh, just pray that it would be glorifying for his name, edifying for your faith and heart and mind and the renewal thereof and uh, Hope it be clarifying for you and um, Leonard uh, led a really good message today um, about the text at hand and this is about Jesus greatness and surpassing worth and let's dig in all right so verse 37 in Luke 9 on the next day so this is after the transfiguration where he pulls back the cloak of his humanity to reveal his deity and you see him for uh, who he is, um, and we and we got to see Moses and Elijah. Moses is the figurehead of the law. Elijah, the figurehead of the prophets. So you have the law and the prophets both present. Um, they're represented there in the brief conversation they had last week with Jesus up on the mountain, uh, and as well, who else is there? Um, the figureheads of the apostles. Um, Peter, John, and James, um, Jesus' inner circle. So you have, in a way, the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament, and what was to be the New Testament proceeding. Um, you have the whole Bible in one place, and you have God coming in the cloud and verifying once again, um, authenticating and, author and authorizing His Son. And it, it, it's, it's a magnitude of a scene to see. Um, we said in last week's Digging Deeper that um, between his birth and the Passion, this is the most significant event, the Transfiguration. And so there, Jesus coming down the mountain, Peter, James, and John are coming behind, are following back down the mountain. And if you can imagine... This stuck with them the rest of their lives. I mean, John and Peter wrote about it later in their epistles, decades after this happened. And um, so it's still this event, which they wrote about decades later, was still fresh on their mind the next day, of course. Changed them. So, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. So it seems that Jesus' absence... Um, that the remaining disciples who were left, were, he kind of walks down to find him. You read the text and it kind of feels like there's a mess that he's walking into. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. He suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. This is a desperate man. This is this is his only son. Um, and there's a, something about this is the this isn't the first time we've met someone who Jesus helps um, with an only child. He stopped the procession of death and stopping the pallbearers of the woman who lost her son. Um, 
Makes me think of Abraham and Isaac. God commanded him to test his faith, his only son, and stopped him from sacrificing his son to say, I'm not like the other gods of the day. You're not going to give your son to me. There's no child sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice my son. I'm not like those other gods. Don't be like those people who follow them. But this father here, back to the text, he says that this uh, spirit shatters his son, leaves him in a state of disarray, disorientation. These are all the telltale signs, by the way, of epilepsy. Um, however, it was obvious that there was this wasn't mere epilepsy, but there was a power behind it. Um, there was a spirit who had its hand on the wheel of this already impossible case. You know, until the 1800s, there wasn't a cure for anything. Think about that. When we see Jesus healing now, how significant that must have been. It would probably be much more significant. Um, to the We would take it for granted if he came today. Because how much can we get remedy for? within our power they could get remedy for nothing in theirs so Jesus comes with his words and his power almost how attractive that would have been how and the text goes on verse 40 and I begged your disciples to cast it out but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to be with you and bear with you? That's pretty strong words. Um, we might think Jesus got annoyed with, uh, we might think Jesus got annoyed with people too, but that might wrongly lead us to believe that he sinned. Um, Jesus was grieved by people, but his anger isn't sinful, but righteous. It's part of him being the suffering servant that Isaiah said he would be. Uh, that he get angry with what is wrong. It's a good thing. It's good judgment. It's not judgmental to be zealous for what's wrong. You, there's a fine line you can cross, and, and that's a sermon for a different day, I guess. Uh, but Jesus doesn't cross that line. Uh, this is appropriate. Um, it's honestly, it's amazing. We don't read of him getting angry more. Um, it's a good thing to be grieved by bad things. And Jesus is in a world full of it. Um, and it's in his very followers. So what's bad here? Why does Jesus make this bring out these hard words um he's righteously angry annoyed displeased because he gave them all they needed to be fruitful and handle the situation that this that wasn't handled by the disciples he left on the bottom of the mountain back in the first part of this chapter chapter 9 verse 1 and he called the 12 apostles and he 12 and he, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over 
all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. It's all right there. They had it in them. It was still active. They're bringing reproach upon his name to operate, not operating in the power that he bestowed on them. Um, it's a tragic thing when we abandon what we've received and so abandon the one who gave it. Neglect of God gets derision from God. His frustration is just, and the writer of Hebrews exhorts his readers, uh, saying in uh, Hebrews 12, 5, 12, 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? Have they forgotten the exhortation that gave them power and authority? Um, we forget, I forget. I am world-class champion at forgetting things um, that could have been useful in moments of temptation and trial and whatever may come. See, I can read this and we could think, oh, those disciples and I, and then I, maybe I would think if I lived back then, I wouldn't have done, no, I would have botched it just like they did, much worse. So by the end of the day, we'll see the disciples put too much faith in their own given ability because they, this man brought them to the disciples and they couldn't heal him. They lets us know they tried and their failure lets them know that they weren't walking as they did when Jesus sent them out. Um, maybe pride formed where humility had just been and were supposed to be operating in and of themselves then they found themselves unable to do anything and they could only do ultimately nothing um, only Jesus can do these things now he gave them the power to but they weren't operating in that power like I don't know if he went up the mountain and they felt by themselves. We'll get to that in a moment, but uh, John 15 verses one through five came to my mind at this point. Jesus says this, I am the, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing all right so at his return he was angry to find no fruit to find the chaos that had been caused by you know, Jesus calls them faithless so their lack of faith they'd lost sight of Jesus when he went up the mountain and therefore only looked at themselves forgetting that they belonged to him regardless of where he was. 
we cannot bear fruit when we're looking at ourselves. We can be active and that's not fruit. But only, only when we look to him by faith. If we abide, that means stay and not only stay, but obey. If abiding is staying and obeying. So if we abide, if we stay and obey, if we're always delighting and savoring him, would we ever leave? Thanks be to God, his blood covers our, our every lapse and every cause of it, ultimately. Every lapse and every cause of lapsing, every departure is a lap of, lapse of faith but he is always faithful. He is always, he saved us from the hopelessness of a of desperate fall, of our desperate fallen condition. And he saved us to the eternal hope of himself. He says here, bring your son here. I love those words. Bring your son here. I wish I could just put that significance of what those words put on me. In fact, that's my prayer. I pray that that would be, you'd feel the significance of bring your son here to me. I can't get that across. The faithful one calls the father and son. This one's followers had failed him. He will not fail these desperate people. When we're acting in our strength, we will fail each other and everyone else, not to mention God. God never fails. God has a 1,000% success rate. I've done the math. Maybe I can't think of a place where God failed because there is none. At all his endeavors, when we find ourselves lacking, drying, crusting up, and wearied, it's not his fault. If we find in our faith, it's just not what it was at first. If you look back, it's always from neglect of real fellowship with God and the places where he can be found. Prayer, scripture, and his people. See, if you're watching this and you have a church and you have a Bible and you have Christ in your heart, you lack nothing. And maybe you've gone to all these different sources of identity to, so that you can find them telling you things about yourself, trying to satisfy what only he can. Don't, don't go to those places, do those practices. They'll leave you emptier than what you were when you decided to go to them. And so you should go to him. Cut those things out and off. Let him prune them off. Verse 42. While he was coming. I mean, he called, before we go on, he called, he said, bring your son here. 
you have the same invitation. All right, verse 42. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. This was the last bit of control um, this demon had over this boy. Um, and I think of, I watched this movie on Amazon, The Tomorrow War, and these crazy aliens, pretty formidable uh, creatures take over the world and they try to get one in this cage and doesn't go so well for them. They ultimately do, but uh, you think of like trying to get a lion into a cage. You're not going to win that. <laughs> um, but look at the power of his word. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. See, we're powerless against them, the demonic. They're powerless against the Lord. Jesus both vanquished the demon and healed the boy of his condition. Demon gone, epilepsy gone. And see, Luke, uh, Luke is a, phys a physician, right? So he would just call it epilepsy if it was just epilepsy. So being a physician, when he interviewed the people who he got this story from, perhaps the apostles themselves, he would know that it wasn't just mere epilepsy. So Jesus does an exorcism and a remedy, solution to the spiritual and the physical. Note, the disciples received the Lord's rebuke for discipline onto restoration. The demon receives the Lord's rebuke onto condemnation. The Lord disciplines us not to condemn us. And I love this next part, the end of the verse. And he gave him back to his father. The boy rightly belonged to his father. Jesus did justice in rescuing this boy from a helpless hostage situation of belonging to the demon's control. And he gave him back to his father as restoring the family. So, healed him uh, spiritually physically and relationally that's Jesus <laughs> that's Jesus ultimately there's no ultimate problem that Jesus isn't the ultimate solution for whatever it is and all were astonished at the majesty of God majesty means sovereign power authority and dignity that creates awe and reverence imposing loftiness that creates sensational marveling. Martin Luther wrote of this power over evil in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Maybe we'll be playing that at church soon. Should have this week. Uh, he, says he's, he says this, and the church has been singing this ever since. And though this world with devils filled 
should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word, one little word shall fell him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. And that's all the text says. It doesn't say, and the spirit came out of him. All it has to say is Jesus rebuked it. Healed the boy, gave him back to his father. One word accomplished all this. With a single word, he did what no other means could accomplish. Remember this when you open your Bibles full of God's words. From the first to the last in this book, meet this God here, here. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, all right, so he shut everyone up by his power and spoke to his disciples in that silence. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Two things. One, we can only understand if God enables it. Um, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Actually, 1 and 2. The truth remains concealed unless the Lord reveals the truth. The truth is locked and so safeguarded and impenetrable because we can only pollute the truth outside of understanding being given of the truth. Uh, nothing is more important than the truth because if you don't have the truth, you have distortion, disorder, chaos, and no reality. Said again, keep saying it because it's worth it. Simple destination, uh, definition of truth is reality. No, rea no truth, no reality. Um, no ground on which to stand. Uh, so he put it in their minds, but he did not open it in their minds yet. Why? Here's point number two. One of the greatest apologetics of our faith is here in that Jesus repeatedly predicts his own death, how he's going to die, and that he would rise again on the third day. Then he goes on to accomplish just that. And then they understand. Understand what? The majesty, reality, authenticity, authority of Jesus Christ. Like, this is the guy. This is God. This is everything so that we're left with no other option as to who Jesus is and that he outweighs every other option that comes or that we go to. There is no, er uh, there is no error insufficiency in Christ by which we can credibly reject him other than blatant rejection itself. See, 
I've spoken to many people and friends and family and coworkers, and we we come to this point and they find that they have no real or good reason for rejecting him, but that they just don't want him. Even when their own world is found to be impotent or lacking or plainly false, they need God, we need God to illuminate God. If you're a real Christian, it's only because God remade you as such by this truth, this gospel. How is one saved? Repent and believe. Both these gifts, repentance and faith, are given to us by God. Um, both these gifts that cause the choice we only think is ours to make. <laughs> uh, Philippians 1.29 says faith is granted. 2 Timothy 2.24 says repentance is something that God grants, something the Bible commands of us. And then once we see we're unable to do it apart from God's grace, should become clear to you experientially. But it says it verbatim in those places. And 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, even our gifts, what we do with the salvation that he gives us, is um, empowered by him as well. It's all him. Our part is within his part, not outside of it. Um, we put him on, not striving from the outside to get in, but positioned in and striving from within Christ. God, by sovereign grace, accomplishes his sovereign will. How marvelous that he would love us with love in his sovereign plan, with such love in his sovereign plan, with sovereign love in his sovereign plan. If we are in Christ, we do good to remember this sovereignty in our impotency, because we're going to run into it all day. <sighs> and find his strength there in our weakness, the place where our weakness is made perfect. He's still with us from the top of the mountain <laughs> as we're here in a short time, for a short time more in our brief exile. He's still with us even though he's at the right hand of the Father. We're indwelled by him. May we be found faithful because he's not really absent in his absence. And then to close um, the last three verses, <clears throat> an argument arose among them which one of them was the greatest oh man this is funny because they go for but they did not back to verse 45 but they did not understand the saying <laughs> so none of them understand what Jesus is telling them and so they start arguing which one of them are the greatest way to go guys alright Oh, the patience of God. <laughs> That's so... Man. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, 
whoever receives this child in my name, in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Like you think you're great? Be like this kid. Um, See, God himself, God made himself least of all to save all. Go read Philippians 2, to the point of death on a cross. He's the only one with any real greatness. You know, it's not kingdom-wise. It's not a, it's not a uh, bad thing to want to be great in whatever you do. Win championships or employee of the month, whatever, whatever. Um, to excel. But kingdom-wise, he is the greatest. Um, and that's our joy, you know. Our greatness comes from him. That's how great he is. Uh, to have childlike faith in God, which has all with no work for any of it is to have greatness. Like no child with any good father feels the need to justify themselves at like in their sonship. Okay. Um, no son or daughter has to work to be a son or daughter is what I'm saying. They are and they live in the joy of being um, with implicit faith in their parents teaching like, okay, like you're telling me this is what's good. I'll go this way because I believe in my father. I believe uh, and, and my God, go this way and you will live. Um, you'd be good. Is it okay? I'll go that way. That's it. Like we have that kind of faith. Like um, we, we believe in what he says is good is good. And we believe in what he says is wicked and evil is wicked and evil. You want to help me? Okay. I must need help. I mean, this kind of faith, don't just believe in God, believe God. As R.C. Sproul said, so our being is our joy in Christ, not wanting for more. Um, Christ alone. Grace and peace.